when you preach on certain topics, your, your, your kind of sense is going to be one of those weeks. The subject we're going to be looking at today is how to find joy in suffering. So it's been just a great week. It started out with me going down with man flu and has got progressively worse since. My back is completely shot. I've had to dose myself right to the hilt with uh, prescription drugs just to get here. Uh, so I am actually finding quite a lot of joy uh, in suffering right now because of the, the medication, although it is dulling my mind somewhat to the point it could be very interesting in the next 30 or 40 minutes. I haven't a clue what I'm going to say. And you can start praying now because next time I'm preaching on death. So I'm a little worried about that one. It could go either way. But before we get to that, this morning, as I said, we're going to be dealing with finding joy in suffering. Now, even in bringing up this whole subject of suffering, some of you will immediately be shutting down, kind of out of self-defense. I don't know, you, you might think that you have suffered so much more than me, and so I've got no right whatsoever to address you in your suffering. It's like the hardship that you've endured in your life so surpasses, so supersedes anything that I've been through, you've already made the conscious decision that anything I've got to say on the subject is completely irrelevant to you. But rather than talking about all the suffering that I've endured, even this last week, intense and immense as it has been, in some kind of attempt to try and outdo you and make myself out to be some kind of suffering superhero, what I say is this. The author of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, his experience of suffering makes him well worth listening to. So I don't want to diminish or in any way demean your suffering in any way, but I want you to know right at the outset that in Paul, you've got a man who not only identifies with suffering, but a man who experienced tremendous suffering and who was also exemplary in his attitude towards suffering. And so, really by way of introduction, I'd like to simply read you some of Paul's words that are taken from another one of his letters, a letter called 2 Corinthians. I want you to listen to what he says, because as you hear him talk about his own personal experiences, I think it's going to build his credibility. So that when he then speaks directly into the subject of suffering, you'll understand that his words carry tremendous weight. So here's what he says in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the providence of a province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not quite killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And then a little later on in chapter 11, verse 23, Paul 
writes these words, speaking of some false teachers who were grieving him. He says this, are they really servants of Christ? I mean, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a whole night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I also face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And just in case you weren't getting the picture, one final example from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. When I'm weak then I'm strong. I think it's fair to say, Paul understands what it means to suffer. And as he writes this particular letter to the church in Philippi, he's slap bang in the midst of it. The context of this letter, Paul's in prison for his faith. He's facing the very real prospect of being put to death. So when he talks about suffering here, I'd suggest he has credibility He's worth listening to. Let's pick up what he says then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, it doesn't tell us the exact detail of what's happened to him. We know he's in prison, but we don't know if he's hungry or well-fed. Don't know if they've broken any of his bones because they did that kind of thing. We don't know if he's sick, if he's sleeping on the floor or in a bed. All he says is, now I want you to know, brothers, sisters as well, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now look, all of us will suffer at some point in our lives. Our experience of suffering will differ from person to person, but each one of us will suffer in some way. I mean, it's just part and parcel of living on this fallen, sin-cursed planet. And so, even if you're not suffering right now, 
What Paul says here in this passage, I believe, is relevant for all of us. And what Paul shows us here is that there is a way to suffer as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, so that our suffering is purposeful. So my question to you is this. When you suffer, because the question isn't if you suffer, it's when you suffer. So when you suffer, will you suffer in such a way that it's purposeful or purposeless? Will you suffer in such a way that God could somehow use your suffering to work something good in you? The Bible as a term for this. The Bible calls this the whole process of sanctification. It's this process where through suffering and through hardship and pain and mourning and loss and strife and through the various struggles we face in life, we're made to be more and more shaped or patterned or conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. So the all-important question is this. Is that what suffering will do in your life? Will it make you more like Christ? Will it serve a purpose? Will it be meaningful? Will it produce something good? Or will suffering have the opposite effect on you? Will you allow it merely to be an excuse for sin? I don't know, I'm suffering, therefore everyone who I come into contact, they're going to suffer as well. Will you let it become an entry point for things like anger, or self-pity? Will it become your identity in life? It's like your suffering starts to define who you are. Will you allow it to cause you to become bitter? I don't know, bitter against other people, perhaps even bitter against God. So you begin shaking your fist at him as if he was unjust and unfair in some way, and he needed to repent to you because he's done you wrong. You see, the question isn't whether you'll suffer, it's whether you will suffer well. Will you suffer in such a way that God could use it to do something good in you? Will you allow him to use your suffering to grow you in stuff like love and mercy and patience and kindness and faith and humility and all-round Christ-likeness? So before we grapple with the detail of this passage in Philippians, I want to just flag up a few questions A few questions that hopefully will help your suffering become ever so slightly more purposeful. Question number one. Will your suffering compel you to love Jesus more? Will your suffering compel you to love Jesus more? Some of you, you know what I'm talking about here. You've suffered. You've really suffered. And because of your suffering, your love for Jesus has just grown and grown and grown. Because in your suffering, you lost everyone and everything but Jesus. And he's the only one who got you through it. Will your suffering compel you to love Jesus more? Question number two, will your suffering purify your motives? Will what you're going through act to purify your motives? Now this is important because if we're followers of Jesus, we're commanded to do absolutely everything for the glory of God. But if we're being honest, it can be pretty difficult at times because our motives are very mixed. So things that perhaps started out as service for God can very quickly end up merely serving ourselves. I don't know, we we, we can end up doing it for the attention 
or doing it for the praise, or doing it for the approval of others, doing it for the glory, for the promotions. But when we suffer, it's like all of the extra motivations for faithfulness to Jesus are slowly stripped away. I tell you, there is nothing like a bout of suffering to expose our true motives. And Paul here is a great example of that. He has no help, no wealth, no freedom. He has nothing whatsoever to gain out of all of this. It's like it proves his motives are pure. It's just for Jesus. Will your suffering purify your motives? And question number three, will your suffering reconfigure or redirect your priorities towards the gospel? You know, we can so easily in life get off mission and get off message. I mean, life is just busy. And so, very quickly, we can find ourselves not primarily focusing on Jesus and his will for our life. It's not a conscious thing. It's not something that purposefully we decide to do. We just get distracted from the mission he's given us, the the mission to take the good news about him to the very ends of the earth, starting right here where he's placed us. It's like we end up pursuing other things instead. People, perhaps, or popularity, or self-esteem, or experiences like comfort and wealth and pleasure instead of pursuing Jesus. We lose sight of the fact that in every situation we face, whether it's good or bad, there is an opportunity. It provides an opportunity for Jesus to do a work in me. It provides an opportunity for Jesus to do a work through me. It provides an opportunity for me to know Jesus better, for me to love Jesus deeper, for me to be closer to Jesus. And so when suffering comes along, as it will for all of us, It provides an opportunity to clarify our focus and redirect, reconfigure our priorities back to where they should be, back to Jesus. So let me ask you, have you suffered? Or are you suffering right now? If so, I want you to think about this. In what way could God use your suffering, use what you're going through, to accomplish something good in you if you'd just be willing to partner with him through it all. Because if you'll partner with God, he will take what you're going through or what you're going to go through and use it to do something good. Use it perhaps to strengthen your relationship with him. Use it to cause you to become more like Jesus. Not only that, this is what I think is the really wonderful thing. We, We see it really much in this passage. It'll also use what you're going through to provoke people around you. So there's other people witness the way you suffer. They'll see that you're suffering in a way that you absolutely couldn't apart from Jesus. They'll see that Jesus, in some tangible way, is a work in you. They'll see that Jesus is making a real difference in your life. And as a result, some will turn to Jesus in their suffering. So the all-important question is, will your suffering be purposeless or purposeful? And I'm begging you today not to waste your suffering. Your tears shouldn't be in vain. Your struggle shouldn't be wasted. Your hardship shouldn't be without meaning, 
shouldn't be lost, shouldn't be neglected, shouldn't be abandoned. Rather, it should be embraced. It should be embraced as God-centered, Jesus-given, divine opportunity. That's certainly how Paul viewed it. It's as though he has a one-track mind. It's as though everything he was going through, whether it was good or whether it was bad, it was merely an opportunity for other people to encounter the gospel, the good news about Jesus for themselves. If more and more people are getting exposed to the gospel, if more and more people are getting exposed to Jesus, then that's reason enough for joy, even if it comes via this route of personal suffering. And that's what we see in these verses in Philippians chapter 1. First of all, we see that Paul's chains of suffering have provided very real opportunities for him to speak to others about Jesus. Here he is, literally chained to a soldier who has to keep guard over him 24-7. And whereas I'd perhaps have found this mildly irritating, slightly intrusive, perhaps I would have found mild forms of grumpiness emerging from me, Paul assumes this man's going to become a Christian. I mean, God wouldn't chain someone to me unless they were supposed to meet Jesus. So praise God for this captive evangelistic audience that he has provided me with. He cannot escape. I'm going to keep preaching and preaching and preaching until he gets it. Verse 12, Paul says, What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result... It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He's saying, not only is the soldier who is looking after me now thinking about Jesus, he's also now talking to some of his mates about Jesus. And now the whole palace guard know. And just so you know, that's 9,000 elite Roman soldiers. So as a result of my being in chains, 9,000 very prominent men have started thinking about Jesus for themselves. So let me ask you, what do you feel chained to at the moment? What do you feel chained to at the moment? Some of you perhaps feel chained to your desk, chained to a job that you really don't enjoy. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mum and your experience is very much of being chained to your house. Some of you find yourself at times chained to hospital or in some kind of ongoing treatment for an ailment of some kind. Why don't you say to God, God, why am I chained here? And if you're prepared to ask him that, I think God would tell you, much like he did with Paul, I don't want you to resent the chains. In fact, you're not really chained at all. Because I've put you in this situation, I've put you in this context to bring people into your world and to give you a glorious opportunity to speak to them about me. Now you see, God would say, I'm giving you an opportunity here to demonstrate the difference that Jesus makes in the life of a hurting person. I'm providing a powerful context for your witnessing. Do you get it? Your suffering isn't in vain. It's actually for your good 
And even more than that, it's for the good of those who are seeing and hearing how you suffer. Right now, I believe that God is wanting to transform your perspective. God's wanting to transform your outlook so that rather than seeing the chains, rather than seeing the problem, you start seeing the opportunities that potentially it could open up. There are people that God is going to work in as a result of either what you're going through right now or what you're going to go through in the future. And right now, I believe God is wanting to give faith to you to see things differently. So first of all then, Paul's chains of suffering provided very real opportunity for him to speak about Jesus. Secondly, we also see here that other Christians who heard about Paul's suffering, they grew in their faith as a result. Paul says this in verse 14, And because of my chains, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's like Paul's fearless witness to Christ inspired other people to do the same. I mean, if God could give him courage to witness like that while he was in prison, while he was in chains, they must have thought to themselves, well, he can then give courage to us to witness in our difficult circumstances too. It's not that they weren't witnessing before. It's just they were a bit timid and hesitant. But having seen Paul's courage, now they dare to take much greater risks. It's as though Paul's example had inspired them to speak out courageously, boldly, without fear, regardless of how dangerous the situation seemed. Because courage is contagious. A whole lot of people caught boldness from Paul's bravery. And when Paul saw that, he rejoiced. It's like he's saying, well, If my attitude towards suffering is what it takes to inspire a whole load of others to up the stakes in their own personal witnessing, then bring it on. I mean, it's all been worth it. It's painful me, but but look, the harvest is great. I'm praying that almost 2,000 years on, you would catch something of Paul's courage as well. I've been asking God all week that today something would shift in your thinking, that, that your eyes would open to the fact that It's actually all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and other people coming to faith in Jesus. It's about something much, much bigger than your life, your successes, and your achievements, and your suffering, and your struggles. It's about God and His plan to seek and save those who are lost. It's all about the gospel bearing fruit in your life and spreading to those around you in your home in your school, in your college, your university campus, your place of work, your community, this city, God has called you, God has called us to spread the good news, the good news that Jesus died for our sins, the good news that he not only died, but he rose again from the dead to prove he really is God, and that God's plan of salvation really worked, and that sin and death really are now defeated. And he's alive today, and knowing him, It's the only way to find forgiveness. It's the only genuine way to find true life and joy and hope and peace and meaning and purpose. And now, the chief purpose of your life is to live it in such a way that it provokes 
and it challenges and it compels many others to put their faith in Jesus and to live to glorify him too. You want to know why God has called you? You want a sense of purpose in your life? You want a greater sense of significance? It doesn't get much bigger than this. It doesn't get much more great, much more glorious, much more significant than all of this. So look, you will suffer. All of us will suffer. The question is, will you suffer well? Will you suffer purposefully or purposelessly? Will you suffer in such a way that God does a work in and through you? Or will you waste it? Will you waste your sickness and your poverty? Will you waste your hardship and your loneliness? Will you waste the tears, the grief, the sadness? Will you waste your suffering? What a great tragedy. If you'd waste all of that, the opportunity, the potential, the good that could come out of it. There was an American missionary to India a few years ago. His name was E. Stanley Jones. And here's a great quote that I think sort of articulates so much of what Paul's saying here in these verses. He says this, Don't bear trouble, use it. Don't just bear it, use it. He says, take whatever happens, justice and injustice, pleasure and pain, compliment and criticism, take it up into the purpose of your life and make something out of it. He says, turn it into a testimony. Turn it into a great story. And that's what I believe God's calling you to do. However negative your experience is, you have the potential to make something positive out of it. You can choose to sink deeper into self-pity. You can choose to immerse yourself into the darkness of it all. Or you can decide to use the situation for good. Turn it into a testimony. Turn it into a glorious story of God's goodness, His faithfulness, and His grace. It's a number of years ago now, but I still vividly remember the last funeral that I went to. It was of a lady called Emma, who had died of cancer in her mid-twenties, leaving behind a husband and a newly born child. And although I'd never met her, I went along to her funeral because I was good friends of her parents, and I wanted to, in some way, stand with them and support them through what had happened. And although... I didn't know Emma. I'd never physically met her in all my life. I've got to say, I've never wept so much in all my life. Because what emerged was this incredible story of unshakable faith and tremendous courage that challenged me to the very core. Because when she was diagnosed with cancer, Emma was faced with a choice. Get angry with God and reject him, or trust him, and make the most of the rest of her life. And when she was diagnosed with cancer, by her own admission, although she was a Christian, she wasn't in a great place with God. But she chose the latter. She chose to trust him, and make the most of the rest of her life. And her funeral, it was just this phenomenal testimony to her choice to live her final months 
completely for God. But there are stories of her worshipping through intense pain. There are testimonies of medical staff becoming Christians. Some of them had actually been baptised the weekend before she died. It's like, faced with imminent death, her last year, her final months, was the best year, the best months of her life. She clung on to God and made something out of it. She turned it into a glorious testimony. I guess none of us knows what's round the corner in our lives. But why not resolve to live each year as though it was our last? Not in some kind of morbid, fear-filled way, but with a greater sense of urgency, a greater sense of purpose. And who knows? Who knows how many lives could be touched by your face? Who knows how many people you could inspire? Who knows how many people could come to know Jesus through you? So what do we learn from all of this about how we're to respond in suffering? Well, helpfully, Paul answers that question in verse 18. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul's saying, as long as the truth about the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is ringing out and being proclaimed, then I rejoice. That's how to find joy, even in the midst of very real suffering. And that's my desire for you, that you would know incredible joy whenever you experience times of suffering. Now, in saying that, I just want to underline, I want to reiterate what we saw last time, that joy isn't primarily a feeling or an emotion. It's a choice. It's a lifestyle. I mean, if joy was purely an emotion, God couldn't command us to have it. I mean, that would be cruel. Imagine if I'd gone up to Emma's parents at her funeral and rebuked them for weeping. I told them to pull themselves together and that as good Christians, they should be feeling joy. That's just insensitive. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's illustrating here is that rejoicing or having joy is a choice we make in life. So throughout the Bible, throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, we're told repeatedly, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, but we're to rejoice as a choice. Can't you that, isn't it? Rejoice as a choice. Joy is a lifestyle, and rejoicing is something that it's possible for us to decide to do as an act of our will, even in the midst of suffering. It's not rejoicing that we're suffering. It's rejoicing that in our suffering, there is still purpose. It's finding joy in the fact that even through our suffering, God is still doing something great in us and through us, that we'd know and love and trust Jesus more, and that others would be compelled to become Christians for themselves, and that other Christians would be compelled to be better Christians in some way. And so our suffering isn't purposeless. It's purposeful. We're not wasting our hardship. We're not wasting our tears. We're not wasting the pain. We're not wasting our poverty. We're not wasting our sickness. It's like 
there is an opportunity for us to make much of Jesus in absolutely everything. And for that reason, we can rejoice. You know, we so often tend to think of joy and suffering as enemies of one another, as foes and not friends. But joy and suffering are spoken of together roughly 18 times in the New Testament. And Paul, he connects them more than anyone else. Suffering and rejoicing really can go together. But only if we understand the personal work of Jesus, which is where Paul continually returns. Great theme of Philippians is Jesus. As we're going to keep on seeing, Paul repeatedly comes back to Jesus. So that's how I want to close today, with Jesus. Because none of this, none of what I've been saying makes any sense at all without him. There is no joy in suffering apart from with Jesus. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, a passage prophesying what it will be like when Jesus comes, says that Jesus, he'd be a man of sorrows. In other words, he would be familiar with suffering. And he was. Think about it. Jesus, he left the glories of heaven to enter right into the suffering of this earth. He chose a life that you and I, were we given the choice, we would never ever have chosen. A life of extreme suffering. He suffered financially, physically, emotionally. He suffered spiritually, relationally, in every way, and to a far greater depth than Paul or you or I will ever experience. Yet Jesus' suffering was purposeful, not purposeless. Jesus, he accomplished so many things for us through his suffering. And so I just want to list a few for you before we finish. First of all, Jesus, he took our sin, he purchased our salvation by suffering for us. He, who was without sin, went to the cross and substituted himself and suffered and died in my place for my sins. I'll tell you, for me personally, and I guess for all of us here today who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, Jesus' suffering, we'd have to admit, was really very purposeful. Secondly, Jesus suffered not only for our salvation, but also as an example for us. We'll unpack this a little bit more when we get to chapter 2 in a few weeks' time, but when we suffer, we can look to Jesus. He's the greatest example of how to suffer well. Jesus suffered as an example for us. Thirdly, Jesus continues to suffer with those of us who are Christians. He continues to suffer with us. I want to just very quickly try and unpack that. I believe there's one particular experience in the life of Paul that in large part defines and explains his theology, his understanding of suffering. And that was his conversion. If you remember, Paul was a man prior to his conversion who was persecuting and murdering Christians. And one day, he was on the way to Damascus to cause more Christians there to suffer. And though Jesus had suffered, and though Jesus had died and risen again and ascended back into heaven, 
Jesus came down and literally knocked Paul to the ground as Paul was merrily on his way to cause more suffering for Christians. And Jesus blinded Paul, and then he spoke to him. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, because that was Paul's name at the time, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Hold on a moment. I mean, Jesus wasn't the one being persecuted here. He was in heaven. It was his followers who were being persecuted. I want to get this. Jesus so closely identifies with us, his followers, that we are called the body of Christ. It's a metaphor, it's a picture, but it speaks of intimate connection so that when you suffer, in some way Jesus suffers. When you hurt, in some way Jesus hurts. When you weep, and I can't explain this fully, Jesus weeps. It's a mystery. can't properly explain it, but I do celebrate it. I celebrate the fact that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who sympathizes with us in our weakness, which includes our suffering. Listen, when you suffer, you haven't been forsaken. When you suffer, you haven't been abandoned. When you suffer, you haven't been betrayed. When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and surely I will be with you always until the end of the age, it is true. It was true for Paul. When he was suffering in prison alone, he wasn't alone. Jesus was with him. And it's just as true for us today. When we're suffering, Jesus is with us. Jesus suffers with those of us who are Christians. But fourthly, we look forward to the day when Jesus will put an end to all suffering. As Christians, you know, we believe that this world is going to come to an end one day. It's going to be a glorious new heaven, a wonderful new earth, and there'll be no more weeping or mourning. There'll be an end to death, an end to sin, an end to sorrow and sadness, an end to all suffering. That's what the Bible promises. That's our hope. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you'd say, well, I don't actually follow Jesus myself. I wouldn't count myself as a believer in him. I don't want to come across as unduly harsh, but the Bible is incredibly clear on this. The Bible teaches that without Jesus, your suffering is purposeless. And without Jesus, you will die and you'll go to hell and suffer forever. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. If you turn to Jesus, if you give him your sin, if you say, yeah, I want to follow you, I want to become a Christian, then your suffering will be purposeful. And when you die, your suffering will end forever. I want to give you an opportunity to respond in two minutes' time when we draw to a close. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you now just to be weighing up, how am I going to respond to him? Is today the day I'm going to decide to become a Christian? Just be weighing up in your mind how you're going to respond, whether you're going to respond. But fifthly, to all of us, Jesus says this in John 16, 33. 
He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. In other words, there will be suffering. You will suffer. And when you suffer, I guess the point of this message is, I don't want you to be thrown by it. I don't want it to leave you confused. I don't want it to destroy your faith. I don't want you to think in those times that somehow God is against you. I don't want it to have a negative effect on you. So here's what I want to urge you to do. When you suffer, suffer well. Suffer like Jesus. Suffer with Jesus. Suffer for Jesus. Let let Jesus use the suffering to do something good in you. And let Jesus use the suffering to do something good not only in you, but through you. In other words, don't waste any of your suffering. Don't waste it, invest it. Invest it in the gospel of Jesus. Invest it in other people who know him and the people who need to. I'll end with this quote. It's from a Romanian church leader who himself suffered greatly under the communist rule. He says this, Christians are like nails. He says Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. I guess through this message, I've been trying to call you to be a good, strong, firm, straight nail so that when life hammers you and it will at those times you'll rejoice not in the pain of the strike not in the pain of the blows but in the depth of its effect understand it's not that you rejoice because of the suffering but you rejoice because of the goodness of God that suffering has the potential to drive you deeper into Christ and to draw others to Christ.